Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Valley Transportation. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 or go to valleytransinc.com for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. This podcast is also brought to you by AgDirect. No matter how you buy your ag equipment from a dealer, auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. Marcus with Sean Hackett. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Axon Tire, helping dealers move more iron for the past 100 years. For more information, go to axontire.com. If you're interested in a free pocket knife, you might need one down there, Sean, to fight off all those alligators. If you want one of those, send an email to marketing at axontire.com and you can get a free uh, free pocket knife sent up to you. Just send your details and tell them the Moving Iron Podcast sent you to marketing at axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 or go to valleytransinc.com for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. And no matter how you buy your ag equipment from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. Well, Sean, it's the much-anticipated Q&A with Sean Hackett Thursday, and I think... Uh, I should get together like some kind of a sounder here with like he wants to be a millionaire type music or something like that that way. <laughs> Just uh, let you know, I, I yeah. did use my pocket knife to cut my lemon this morning. There you so. go, right on. Yeah. There you yeah. go. So look, you got it's multi-use. You can, it's more than just uh, anything. You can cut lemons and limes and all kinds of tropical citrus fruits. There you go. Look at that. It works. All right. Well, before we get to the Q and A part, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the marketplace. Um, Wheat, I mean, just like you talked about Tuesday, you're like, I think today is the day that, you know, we start seeing everything go backwards, and it's been going backwards since. So um, wheat was limited down for the last two days. Um, I haven't seen where it's at this morning, but it started out limited down, or started out down over overnight. Uh, corn, beans, oil, you name it, it's all, it's, all, uh, it's all going backwards right now, Sean. So it looks like uh, maybe some of that correction you were talking about on Tuesday is starting to take place. You can't keep emotions running that high for very long. It just never can can, can continue that way. $13 wheat was pricing in no supplies at all out of Ukraine for the next 12 months. And while, while no one can know exactly what's going to happen, I don't believe that's going to turn out to be the case. I think some supplies will come out of Ukraine. And if some supplies come out of Ukraine, then $13 wheat is overvalued. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, all else being equal. Of course, we could have weather problems and, you know, something could come up later in the year that could create a reason for weight to go higher. But based upon this event alone, I think we priced it all in at $13 wheat. Now, yeah. uh, you know, soybeans never had a reason to go higher. So 
you know, outside of sunflower oil competing with bean oil, which is a stretch, um, there was no reason for soybeans to go higher. And the reality with corn is, um, it seems to me, with the, what we've done with the corn price, we're probably going to increase our planted acres in other areas of the world now and add extra acres and add extra production potential that could easily make up a lot of the, what was is expected not to come out of Ukraine, even if they don't plant the crop or they only plant half a crop or whatever whatever they do. So I, so I just think the market overreacted. Um, and even for crude oil, for example, uh, everyone you know, worried that Russia, you know, that the, that the U.S. is not buying their oil from Russia anymore, which is three percent, by the way, of our supply. Didn't didn't say Russia was going to sell to the Chinese. They are. Oh, oh sure, yeah. So so if they sell three percent to the Chinese that we don't buy, that means the Chinese don't buy that three percent from the Middle East, which means the Middle East have three percent more to sell to us. <laughs> right. Which means. Has anything really changed in the crude oil market? No. No, right. So, so once again, I, I, I think the market, you know, I'm not saying that it's not a serious situation. I'm not saying that the market had no reason to react. Um, and I'm not saying I know how this is all going to turn out. But I do believe that the fevered pitch of $130 barrel oil with what we, with what we know today um, and $13 wheat, was an extreme bullish psychological um, price point that in order to, uh, for us to exceed that, Casey, we would really, really need a situation um, in Ukraine to, to, to unravel to something far greater, you know, meaning including something other than Ukraine, you know, some kind of a, maybe a, a regional war, a world war, something involving European countries. It, it would have, you know, China getting involved in the mix, maybe China going into Taiwan. I mean, Something would have to expand beyond the scope of Ukraine, in my view, for th for those kind of price levels to have uh, a basis for, for for being exceeded, and 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 maybe all that is going to happen, Casey. I you know I I don't know the future of those kind of things more than anybody else, but I do think it's going to be pretty hard to get back there without a real significant um, major escalation of the current situation. I think right now it's going to be de-escalating for a while. Um, the de-escalation part may come later in the year. I think when I'm thinking through, this is just me speaking as a, a trying to think logically. Russia wants the wheat. Russia wants the corn. Ukraine wants the wheat. Ukraine wants the corn. China wants the wheat. China wants the corn. So these all every player involved in this mess want this production. I think they're going to find a way to 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 at least provide the conditions where the ag industry can operate enough that those supplies aren't a zero. That's my bet and my gamble at this point. Okay, that's good Good analysis there. All right, let's jump in. It's a good segue into the first question that we have here, and this question is from uh, at the corn guy um, on Twitter, um, Dan Lewis. And uh, so if you want to uh, check that out, go check him out. You got good stuff there. His question is a uh, long-time long -time listener, first-time question. Uh, my question is, if Ukraine gets something planted, South America has a good crop, and the U.S. has a good crop, where do you see December 22 corn uh, at, at harvest? Uh, $5 a bushel, plus or, plus or minus that, and then um, also kind of a follow-up to that. And, and the uh, flip side of that, if you know Ukraine doesn't get a crop in, or South America has a, something pop up, or the U.S. has something pop up, where do you see corn in December? 
Well, we did an analysis, Casey, on what a blow-off top and corn could look like, meaning we just went back to all the blow-off tops and corn since 1970, and we just ran some statistics. This is not a forecast. This is just statistics of you know what has the corn market done before. So if everything goes wrong, which is what this person's asking, you know what does the historical trading of corn suspect could happen? Um, it says we could have a $10 corn price. Um, you know that that's what an overshoot or a blow off top could look like. We ran the same analysis, Casey, in the wheat market, and we said 12 to 14, based upon 50 years of trading, would be consistent with how blow off tops have ended in the wheat market. And we got the 13, and we topped. Mm-hmm. So, that, does it mean we can't rewrite the rules? Of course we could. Does it, does it mean we can't do something we've never done before? Of course we could. But that is our always our best way to, take, to look at what could where where could the upside be. And it would suggest something like, you know, $10, $11 corn market. If everything goes wrong, we blow our top off and we have panic in the streets. You know, historical overshoots in corn would suggest that's possible on a very, very short-term basis. Um, but a lot of things would have to go wrong, Casey, for that to occur. A lot of things would have to go wrong. And I'm specifically talking about, you know, like new crop corn mm-hmm. at this point, 640 or 650, 630, wherever it is today. You know, I'm talking about the new crop corn prices. Uh, and your gentleman is, is asking for the new crop corn price because he's asking about right. what if production's good. Yep. And, you know, for that to, for the new crop corn price to get to ten, twelve, a lot of you know, we have to we have to have a really bad crop in the U.S. We are not forecasting for that. We think the U.S. could have a pretty good crop. We have, they think it's going to become a tough start to the crop as we've been talking about. We think we're going to have a very strong finish line. India is rapidly disappearing. A more lineal pattern is coming. Very very good weather coming for the next few years in the U.S. Very very good weather coming for South America in the next few years. And this tends to allow for production to rebound for a little while, Casey. And everywhere I look, you know, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I don't see a whole lot of hogs in the U.S. I don't see a whole lot of cattle in the U.S. I don't see a lot of hogs anywhere in the world. I don't see a lot of cattle anywhere in the world. I mean, our animal feeding units are not good. And, and with the current environment, uh, these high feed prices and, and some of these remaining issues with the La Nina, you know, I, I don't see where the demand for feed's going to come from to drive prices higher without significant production issues, meaning that, you know, the, the demand side issue has to be remedied, and you remedy a demand problem by getting cheap feed again, and allowing those livestock producers to feel good again, and getting them to get that profit margin again, where they say, you know what, I can get cheap corn, I can get cheap bean meal for the next year or two, I'm feeling good. Let's fire things up. Let's get the fertility cycle going. Let's start you know, growing the herd size again. Um, but the only way you're going to do that is you got to get the feed price down. So, Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, if you guys are interested uh, in asking Sean a question, make sure you email me at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. we got one more question here um, from Mike Sharmel in uh, – his question is, so we talk a lot about weather on here, so this is where this question is coming from. Uh, it says, uh, Sean, from your weather research, uh, will drought continue to intensify? Will it continue, and then will it also intensify in the southern plains? No. We don't believe this is an es- a drought escalation year. Uh, we're, we're talking about the grain belt. You know, we're talking about, let's say, western grain belt mm-hmm. you know, to the eastern grain belt, that, that swath. No. We don't believe we're going to be dealing with an escalating drought. We think we're going to be dealing with a better conditions. 
remember, this is we're not we're not going to be in El Nino this summer, Casey. Mm-hmm. So this is not going to be in El Nino summer where we have just fantastic greenhouse conditions, right. record. We're not saying that. Relative to last year, which I think the question is asking, mm-hmm. relative to last year, we think especially the western grain belt is going to be cooler. Doesn't mean cooler than normal. Right. It means last year I think we were three and a half degrees above normal. Um, throughout the duration of the growing season, we think we're going to be a degree, maybe a degree and a half above normal, but considerably cooler than last year. Now, remember, we had in many areas we had no rainfall at all, Casey. Right, or almost none. So, so remember, if we feel that the that, that we're going to get significant increased chances for rainfall in the western corn belt, it doesn't mean we're going to get abundant rainfall. It doesn't mean we're going to have Greenhouse, but we're going to have more chances for rainfall, better go of it, better conditions, better environment to grow crops than last year. So we think we're actually going to see a de-escalation of drought conditions, meaning not perfect. Yep, some areas are still going to miss. Every year somebody misses something. If we were to kind of look at who could miss, you know, we think Texas, West Texas, you know, that southern area there, it might be the area that still misses it this year. Other than that, we think, especially Northern Plains, Casey, in the Canada, where they that was the mm-hmm. epicenter of the drought. Right. We actually think they're going to have some really good growing conditions. Meaning that we think up the further north you get, it's actually going to get pretty. They could have some really, really good conditions up that way. So, um, does not look like a, a you know a year to expect you know catastrophic crops. That, you know, could we be a little off from trend? Sure. But nothing that's going to allow, in our view, for uh, you know a real uh, escalation of supply worries uh, beyond what we've already experienced. We think it's actually going to be the opposite. Now, are we going to get a weather scare? We always get a weather scare. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's always yeah. too hot. It's too dry. Yep. It's too something. I mean, I'm not saying we're not going to have a weather scare. I'm absolutely going to have a weather scare. Mm-hmm. But is the weather scare actually going to mean a actual real crop problem we don't believe that's going to be the case this year we think we're going to have a, a very challenging beginning but we think we're going to have a rough start if we were thinking about where we could have that weather scare and we think it could be in the, in the first third of the growing season but we think july and especially august we think we're going to have a really strong finish and um and we're going to be dialing in some larger crops uh, and then, of course, when we roll into the South American growing season, we could be entering El Nino during uh, the fall, there, spring, and uh, and 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 that would tremendously, all, all you know, dramatically change their drought weather pattern to, you know, a really really healthy, much more supportive, uh, you know, weather cycle for growing some big crops in South America that they have not had in a couple of years. So, so. So the cycle is saying, you know, that we should be looking for better crops in North and South America, and that means that bigger supplies are going to come at a time when, when our demand is just not going to be there to absorb it, which means we're going to have prices come down unless, you know, we have some kind of a geopolitical thing that, that takes over the normal weather cycles that we're dealing with here. So, Right on. Well, thanks, Mike. Appreciate the question. Again, if anybody has a question for Sean on Thursday, send me an email at movingironpodcast or movingironpodcast.com, or you can just you know, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at movingironllc, and uh, give me your question there, and I'll make sure it gets read. 
So one question I have, I've been thinking about this. So with with going into an, an El Nino cycle, and then you were talking the other day about the northern Atlantic uh, getting cooler. Uh, what's that called? Oscillation? What's it called? Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. AMO. Yes. See, I was right there. See, I listen to what you say, Sean. <laughs> I listen to what I take notes. All right. So with that happening, and then we're going to have, obviously, more opportunity for moisture, are you looking at more, um, as we move into, like like you talked about, late early spring, late winter, those kind of things, seeing a lot more of that that blizzard-type action happening to where we could see uh, some, some late-season late snows? When the Atlantic Ocean cool, gets into the cooling phase, where it's actually below normal, which we believe we've begun. I mean, the North mm -hmm. Atlantic is still pile-driving down, by the way, yep. and now the AMO is pile-driving down. The last, that the last time we flipped was 1962, and the period from 1962 to 1982 was a period where the AMO was in the cold phase, meaning the sea surface temperatures of the Atlantic were colder, and that was a period of, you know, now, uh, the way the teleconnections of the AMO work, when it's warmer than normal, it helps produce more of a drought pattern in North America. Not every year, but in generally, it's a drier pattern. Mm -hmm. um, when it gets cooler, when, it, when you get a cooler Atlantic sea surface temperature regime, it promotes less drought, more moisture, in general, that means more more opportunity for bigger snowstorms, you know, bigger winter storms. It's also a colder pattern for the U.S., meaning that the the air temperatures tend to cool significantly during a period where the Atlantic is colder than normal versus when it's warmer than normal. So that means, you know, longer winters in general, colder winters in general, shorter summers in general. Doesn't mean you can't have a hot summer. We're talking about longer-term trends here, but it means you're going to be dealing with a, a cooler, wetter pattern. Um, and what's interesting, everyone always fears the hot-dry cycle, right? Um, but when you look at the yields in the U.S., our worst period for yield was from 1965 to 1982 in terms of being able to grow yields in the U.S. because of this cold, wet pattern. And then when we got into the drought cycle, our yields have been going through the roof outside of a few times where we get the drought to be too bad, meaning right. that we actually can grow pretty good crops in hot, dry weather if it's not, you know, if it's set on one in 100 year drought like 2012. Right. We actually do really, really well. The technology we have, the seed technology we have, the precision farming we have, we can get by growing good crops in warm, dry weather. We do not know how to grow good crops in colder, wetter weather. And we've already seen um, very a lot of difficulty around the world when we've had colder warmer, uh, colder, wetter weather that we're not able to grow good crops. Mm -hmm. So now it doesn't mean we can't do it. Doesn't mean we can't find a way to do it. Doesn't mean technology can't come to the rescue, but we've not spent any money on how to grow good crops in cold, wet conditions. We've only focused on hot track because that's the weather pattern we've been in since the AMO went warm in 1982. So it's got, you know, it typically takes a decade before technology and investment in technology that identifies a problem, gets its hands around it, and can start solving that problem. And that's why we continue to believe this next decade is going to be the bigger risks in agriculture are going to be to the upside in production shortfalls and in price upside volatility. Like I said, it doesn't mean there's not going to be downside, but we see some downside coming, okay? But overall, you know, we're looking at a more uh, upside risk volatility cycle until technology figures out how can we grow crops in colder, wetter weather, 
and shorter growing cycles. And that's that AMO flipping is part of the 60-year cycle that we've been talking about for a long time and the 40-year cycle that we've been talking for a long time. And it's now really starting to verify and it's a very important uh, natural climate cycle that we've been focused on that um, is part of our longer-term view here on what's going on with climate weather, these cycles. The thing that I want to really emphasize, and I know we've talked about this before, but it's really important to emphasize, the period from 1962 to 1982, which was a major global cooling cycle, and actually led to a ice age fear cycle in the 1970s, did not have a grand solar cycle to accompany it, meaning we didn't have the sun going quiet. We have the sun going quiet now, which adds an additional element. So these two coming together, is the, we have not seen that happen since, 19, since 1600. And lastly, the other side of the, of the pond is the Pacific Ocean. It's the, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, by the PDO, um, moved into the cold phase a decade ago. Meaning it's, that's, that ocean's already been cold, already. Um, now th those oceans have different cycles, but there's a, every 60 years, there's a 15 year period where the AMO and the PDO are cold simultaneously. Both oceans are cold. Remember, sea right. surface temperatures are uh, control the ambient temperature above, not the other way around. So when they both go into the cold phase, it adds an additional cold element into the equation. The last time we had the AMO and the PDO in the coal phase, it was 1965 to 1980. So all these cycles are suggesting that the weather as we have known it is going to be is going to turn upside down. Growing food the way we've known it is going to be turned upside down. And the way we market our crops, the way we produce our crops, the technology that's required to produce our crops, the ground that actually can produce our crops. Um, and the kind of crops that we can grow, short duration versus long duration, oats versus corn, you know, it's really going to have to be thought about and changed. And the infrastructure that I think we're going to need to store the excess of grain into good years um, so that we can get through the bad years, I think all of this is going to have to be rethought about and, and shifted. And that's the process I think we began a couple of years ago when we began the cycle. And so far, if you look at the last years, we've had a heck of a hard time growing production around the world. Almost everywhere you look, we've been under yield, yield pressure. Um, and I think that's that's going to be a theme that's going to continue to show up as we go further on into this cycle. I know it was a long-winded discussion, and I know we've talked about this before, but I think sometimes it helps to repeat you know, what the long-term trends are here with all of this stuff. So. That was going to be my next question anyway, was, you know, how does the sun, the solar cycle play into all this too? And, you know, like you said, we've talked about it a million times. We had Dr. Zarkova on, and she gave us her, her analysis of, of what was there. But same, it, it is important to understand that. And remember, what all these cycles do is it impacts the upper airflow. And, 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 and so, so the jet stream, instead of being this beautiful sine wave zonal flow, it becomes this very undulating, amplified, snake-like, meridional upper airflow jet stream and then that just totally in increases these weather extremes this weather volatility and then it allows that arctic polar vortex we've talked about mm -hmm. uh, you know that the stabilizing polar vortex to occur on a much more regular basis and bring that air down and cause all kinds of havoc with weather volatility around the world and that is in fact absolutely positively happening um and, and clearly happening more frequently 
Um, I mean, we, we are currently in a sudden stratified warming event that just completed. The polar vortex completely destabilized. You know, it's all it's all showing up. The, the frost in Brazil last year. These are things that we haven't seen happen in a very long time that are now starting to happen. And I think it's what what seems to be a one in one hundred year weather events can become more common um, at once we get to the next. You know, over the next decade, we're going to look back and say, well, that actually is more. Now, now we should expect those weather events more like more often than this is the this is the only time we're going to see it for a hundred a hundred years. You know what I'm saying? Right on. Yeah, it's just something to pay attention to, something to really be excited to see happen. You know, I'm not excited to see less crops being grown, but and, excited and, and to see this happen. And I will emphasize yeah. that even though El Nino is a better pattern for mm -hmm. growing grains, remember, it's still going to be amplified. So think of the last El Nino pattern. In 2019, we had the ridiculous rains here in the right. U.S. Yep. We had the ridiculous rains in China. Like, yep. Right. So, so the issue with El Nino even though it's a better pattern, we still would rather have, you know, you know, more more abundant rainfall overall. But um, is the flooding problem too much rain? And too, and the areas that get stuck in the stagnant pattern, you know, yeah, rain is good, but no, it's not good if you if you're if you're uh, riding your boat across your crop. That's yeah, it's, that's thing. a bad, it's a bad that's thing. That's a bad thing. Yeah. And so that would be that's going to be the risk that even in El Nino, and even though we're going to have better production in El Nino years than not. It still means that the, the production potential is going to be off from what you would normally have expected. So let's just say that if you would normally would have expected in the past 30 years of weather pattern that in El Nino, corn could have a 186 yield potential in 2023. Let's just say based upon, you know, we would expect to blow out the record yields like by an order of magnitude and we would bury the corn market for five years, oversupply, game over, bear market. I'm suggesting is... You know, that potential's off the table because of excessive rainfall and weather and extreme weather that, you know, maybe we can, we can, we're going to just get the trend line, maybe just slightly above trend line. Still go across, by the way, but not the crazy, you know, unimaginable bin buster above trend line yields that we have, that's buried the corn market or the grain markets in years past. I don't believe that's on the docket. I think we're going back to good crops, but not great crops in the El Nino cycle. And that is something... That's also allows the the net La Nina El Nino yield adjustment to come down on an average basis. So right on. Uh, hey, good stuff as usual, Sean. Man, there's a lot of good information in this one. If folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what you're doing at Hackett Financial, what's the best way to do that? Our website is Hackett H A C K E T T Advisors .com. We talk about these weather cycles on some of our sample reports. We have interviews, white papers to get everyone knowledgeable what we do to see if what we do could be of value for your listeners right on and if you have questions for sean make sure you send those in to me at moving iron podcast and moving iron podcast.com or just hit me up on any of the social media stuff at moving iron llc facebook twitter instagram or even linkedin so check that out there uh sean appreciate you being on the podcast man thanks casey always appreciate it right on i'm casey seymour with moving iron podcast hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, go to movingironllc.com for uh, everything Moving Iron related. Also get all the information for uh, the uh, Moving Iron Summit coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee, September 6th, 7th, and 8th. Sean will be there talking about this very same stuff. So with that, I am Casey Seymour, Sean Hackett. Let's go with some iron, folks. Out. Axon Tire is going to have more tips, tricks, and client advice throughout the year and in September at the Moving Iron Summit in Nashville. If you're looking to sign up for the event, please head over to movingironllc.com. We hope to see you there.
Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 or go to valleytransitinc.com for all of your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. And no matter how you buy ag equipment from a dealer, auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. Moving higher in the 21st century.